Welcome to the Amplifying Optimism in Education podcast, where we connect with educators from across the globe who are creating a better future for learning and educating now by implementing bold ideas and fostering a sense of curiosity, creativity, and possibility. Welcome to the Amplifying Optimism in Education podcast. I'm your co-host, Joshua Faden, here with my other co-host, Michael Carson. We are, we are joined today by Dr. Carla Manning. We are thrilled to have her with us. She is the founder and president at Equity Leadership Group, also the hostess with the mostest of the Equity Experience podcast, a faculty lecturer with Queens College, and a school diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant and strategist, as well as a former educator by experience. So Carla, you wear many hats. Tell us about how you're filling your time and what each of those roles means to you. Absolutely. Well, first, thanks, guys, for having me on. I'm excited to be here. Uh, thanks for the introduction, Josh. And yeah, um, you know, actually, even though um, I wear those hats, I really see everything um, sort of on, um, on one string for me. I really don't see these positions as different hats, but they're very much interwoven um, into who I am as a, you know, as a person, as a Black woman, as an educator. It's just really part of my identity. So, um, you know, they all sort of mesh together um, in one big jumbo pot. And, um, and I'm loving it. I'm really enjoying all of the work that I'm doing right now. Love it. That's awesome. So I know that the Equity Leadership Group is kind of um, maybe your newest endeavor. Can you talk a little bit about how you came to be uh, the founder and president of Equity Leadership Group and what specifically does Equity Leadership Group uh, do? Absolutely, of course. So the Equity Leadership Group is the name of my consulting company uh, that I launched earlier this year. Um, and it's funny because I had been, uh, you know, talking about and saying how much that I wanted to start a consulting company. I and I was just always talking about it. I, I never did it. I, I never, you know, stepped out on faith and, and really took any action toward it. But I was just always talking about it. And um, last year, I went to a workshop um, that was here in Manhattan. Um, or here in New York, and um, and I said this workshop was just so empowering. It was talking about how women can engage in multiple streams of income, and I said, you know, I can do this. I can do this. And at the time, I was pregnant, and I said, okay, after I have this baby in 2020, um, that's going to be one of the first things that I'm going to really put into motion is is launching my consulting company. Um, and so I did it, and I really wanted to start a company where I felt that I could uh, sort of expand my impact and expand my passion and working with educators and, and also school leaders around equity, diversity, um, and culturally responsiveness. And I just felt that I had the capacity to do it. Um, you know, I had the talents, the skills, the research, as well as the teaching experience. And I, you know, I really think and believe that uh, the, the knowledge that I have and my perspectives can really be valuable um, to schools and school districts. And so that's why I really started the, the consulting company. Um, also, I really wanted to put myself into a position where I could work with educators. Um, having, you know, been an educator myself in, in K-12 settings, you know, I understand the complexities. I understand the challenges that educators face, but I also understand the areas of growth. And I think that's a, a very, you know, much needed conversation um, and growth in all areas of, of teaching, not just, you know, in regards to race and diversity, but uh, just, you know, in all levels of, of professional learning and, and, you know, growth and capacity development. So, um, so yeah, you know, I, I think that, you know, starting a consulting company 
it's just a good area for me to engage in and indulge in. And, um, and really, um, I just feel that I'm, I'm one person. There are many individuals in, in this world, but I feel that I'm just one person who is also uh, jumping into this conversation and you know, really trying to push the needle around um, academic, academic achievement and educational equity, uh, particularly within urban school spaces. Love it. I think that that's what I, I think is fascinating, as you said, that, you know, this has been a plan all along. 2020 was going to be the year that you jumped into it. Of course, nobody could have seen that 2020 would also be the year a pandemic hits, the year of the George Floyd murder, the year that kind of everything has kind of come together. And there's been this, um, I call it the great white awakening, where it's all of a sudden, oh, my goodness, we care about black people. We have to understand black people. Well, where did this come from? And it's like, no, this has been here all along. And so you know, the, the work of equity and diversity and inclusion is something that has been necessary in our country even before we were a country. Mm -hmm. And yet uh, the importance, as you said, it's kind of uh, almost um, coming to a fruition now of just the level at which we need to really seriously examine and take a look at it. And so I'm curious, what are you noticing in terms of schools as they grapple with diversity and inclusion in the current pandemic world, as well as previously and moving forward, where is this work currently? Where has it gone and where might it go in the future? It's a lot to, to ask, but. Absolutely. So first I'll say, you know, we can kind of start back with the history or past. Um, you're right. You know, educators have been talking about racial equity and, and um, inclusion and equality within schools, you know, really since the late 1800s. Um, so this has really been a, you know, always a conversation. I think things really became, you know, very much um, sort of polarized or even extreme, if you will, during the civil rights movement, um, because at that time, many, you know, groups and organizations affiliated with, uh, you know, the Black Power movement really began to talk about how educational institutions uh, need to address issues of racial history within curriculum, inclusion, and then, you know, that work also sort of brought in uh, the Chicano or Latino student movement, as well as uh, um, women's rights, as well as um, uh, homosexual and gays. So, you know, this has always been a conversation, not just in race, but really in all sort of areas of identity difference around how schools and educational institutions um, address representation and curriculum, um, the ways that history is taught, and how students make meaning from the curriculum that is presented to them within classrooms. Um, in the early 1990s, scholars really became, you know, uh, and started to theorize around culturally responsive education and culturally responsive teaching. So, you know, really thinking about specific strategies, instructional strategies that educators can implement that can advance academic achievement um, for marginalized groups of students. So that really became more of a formalized conversation, if you will. Um, <laughs> I, I lost the, the question, Josh. I'm sorry. I got caught up, but then I just lost the point. This has been good. Nope. This has this been is, good. And, and I think that you're answering the question, which is what is the context with which we're Oh, yes. In? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So right now, you know, even, you know, even as I'm starting out off as a consultant, um, you know, this is great. This has really been great, but I'm already seeing like some major concerns. And one of the major, major concerns is around conversations around race and racial equity that just even that uh that element right there that uh that that factor you know folks don't even really have a sort of framework or a you know professional or viable talking point to even discuss race and racism and racial diversity and in a you know sort of diplomatic way without things you know getting um 
getting too contentious, if you will. And, you know, so I think that's, that's just a major starting point. How do we even have conversations? How do we have these courageous conversations that Glenn Singleton talks about in a way that really pushes the needle, but then also respects people's humanity, respects people's viewpoints, and so that people feel heard. And I, I don't think that we're at that, that point yet um, completely. I think we still have a lot more work to do. Um, another, another thing that I'm seeing is, you know, even people's willingness um, to even talk about race. I think that is increasing. I think you're right. You know, you mentioned the Great White Awakening. Uh, and I think that's, that's great. You know, I'm, on one hand, I am glad to see that more whites and particularly white educators are willing to have these conversations. Um, and that was honestly one of the reasons why I think I was stalling on starting a consulting business because uh, philosophically I would ask myself, how am I going to talk about <laughs> race and racial diversity with white people? How am I going to do this? You know, white, white people are not ready to have these conversations. How am I going to do this in a way that, you know, brings respect and integrity uh, to this work and I, I I did not have an answer and you know it, it was sort of prophetic for me to just jump out because yeah now I think this is a great time um, to really have these conversations but it's really it's always been a good time but I think again um, the the feeling or the idea or the absence of um, courageous talking points has has sort of prevented people from really engaging in this work so that's one of the things that I'm seeing um, I think another thing I'm seeing now that I think is really good, I'm actually um, recording a podcast in a couple of hours uh, with a professor around this topic around uh, curriculum and textbooks and representations in textbooks. I think that's a huge, um, a huge concern. And so I think that's something that I'm seeing a lot. Um, you know, educators are saying, hey, you know, how are we, you know, teaching curriculum and content in textbooks in a way that, you know, portrays equity um, and, and still, you know, portrays academic or advances academic success. So that's another thing that I'm seeing. Um, in terms of where I think things should go or where we can go, I, I think this is a good starting point. Um, I think that, uh, you know, having the conversations is a great starting point, but then also talking about how we can um, respect ourselves and respect humanity, I think is also another, uh, another good talking point alongside the racial diversity, so, yeah. Excellent. That's, that's, uh, that's, that's my response. I love it. Yeah, so, so many things lit up in my mind as you were talking and I'm like, pay attention, pay attention, because I was just so fascinated by some of the frames that you set up and some of the vocabulary that you used. And, um, you know, I, I looked at the clock and I was like, oh man, we only have 35 minutes left. Um, <laughs> but I think, I think we'll be fine. Um, and, uh, but, you know, I think one of the questions that uh, kind of arose for me as I was hearing uh, what you were saying is, you know, what, you know, for educators who might not, maybe they're listening and maybe they've had some training around equity, inclusion, and culturally responsive and representative teaching, or maybe not, you know, what are some things that you found yourself, uh, you know, sharing with the teachers you've trained or the educators you've trained that have sort of allowed those conversations to start to unfold and not necessarily the whole framework but you know what are some practical sort of you know more bite-sized things that you know uh you found and maybe some examples of that in terms of your the training and your experiences the last you know several months or however you know six years or so they've had the consulting work going 
Absolutely. So one thing I would say, a good starting point, I think, for educators who are beginning to engage in this work is, number one, um, you know, it, it's, it's also a mindset. And I think that's the first, the first starting point is to realize that, you know, we have to have an open mind and an open heart. That was like the first episode of my podcast. And I named it that because I wanted to, you know, really emphasize that, uh, that, that concept, open minds and open hearts. So, you know, it really requires us um, as educators to go into this work with an open mind uh, and an open mind would allow us to, you know, know about, to understand, um, to realize and to become aware of the experiences and realities of people of color in this country. And then an open heart allows us to feel the compassion that allows us to feel the humanity, to feel uh, the love that exists between us as humans um, and to do so in a forgiving space. And I think that's important, particularly for people of color. You know, we have to, uh, you know, also think about these spiritual elements of, um, of humanity. And, you know, even speaking about the word humanity, I think that's like a, a really good point to remember is that humanity is central to all of this work. Um, all of what we do as educators, as teaching, as learning, is we're really coming to understand the humanity um, within us all and really to understand, you know, what does it mean to be a human? What is the human experience really about? And, you know, even when I was in graduate school, I was very much interested in philosophy and you know, really diving into the work of, uh, say, Michel Foucault or Jacques Derrida to really help me to understand, like, what what are the larger concepts of life and, you know, sort of this um, existing list, exist, how do you, <laughs> I can't pronounce the word. Existential. <laughs> Existentialist uh, sort of concept and idea. Um, you know, so I think that's also important, you know, that we, we really need to remember the humanity and everything um, that we see, live, and experience in life. Um, another good starting point, I think, for educators is to read, man, read, reading, reading. And I, I'm a love, I'm a, an avid reader who loves to read. Um, I've, you know, I've always loved reading. Anyone who knows me knows how I have a strong, uh, a strong compassion and a, a strong affinity towards books. Um, but that's such a good starting point, you know, because many people have, you know, sort of theorized their philosophies and their experiences within books whether that was in the form of memoirs of, you know, academic research, um, nonfiction, fiction, poetry, all of that, uh, we can really learn about uh, uh, the multicultural human experience, if you will, uh, through literature, through novels, uh, through plays, all of that. So um, that's also a good starting point. And I love to see how, you know, many folks are sharing or say social media, like these are some books to start. These are some good books to read. I think that's just a really good starting point. Um, so those are, you know, I guess to answer your, your, your point, those are some major things that I always like to share with educators in terms of where to start, um, is to really get a good grapple on things, uh, you know, with, within yourself. Yeah, I think that that is essential if we are to be able to understand and appreciate and celebrate differences, we have to know who we are too. And we have to be okay with who we are. We have to be Absolutely. okay with where we come from um, so that we can see that, honor that and respect that in others. Absolutely. And I know I just um, wrote an article entitled, we white people read a book, now what? And so it's, it goes to exactly what you're saying, where it's like, we, it's a good starting point. We have to educate ourselves. We can't ask black and indigenous people of color to do the work for us, we have to start to go and try to learn more ourselves to better understand the situation, to better understand the dynamics. Yeah. And, and, and the, the steps that you're talking about, I think are really important steps for being able to um, move, move 
all of us together in, in service of why we are here. And that is Absolutely. our students. Absolutely. And, and I, I think, and I think another thing too, you know, and I, I like that you said, you know, now that we read these books, now what? Because another thing that we really want to think about then is taking action, you know, and really thinking about outcomes and deliverables and, you know, really thinking about the educational institution as a space to, you know, to, uh, to sort of um, achieve these deliverables, you know, that the, the institution itself, uh, the school itself is in a very powerful position, you know, as we all know. And, you know, I think one of the major responsibilities is how can we improve outcomes for the larger society. So as educators, I think we have a responsibility to sort of fall into that that larger thinking in terms of uh, of outcomes and deliverables and really taking action. So for example, one school district that I'm working with, uh, one of the sort of projects that we're doing is strategic planning for diversity and equity. Um, this school district didn't even have a strategic plan for diversity and equity. Many school districts do not. Um, and I think that's also something that needs to be talked about. Why don't school districts have strategic plans for diversity and equity? You know, what is their roadmap? What is their framework for achieving equitable outcomes um, within students? And so if a school district doesn't even have a, a strategic plan, that's, that's an issue right there that needs to be addressed. And that's where uh, workers and consultants such as myself uh, come into handy. But, uh, but for example, you know, on the strategic plan, you know, say if a school district says, well, one of the areas that we want to think about is curriculum and we want to, you know, achieve, you know, sort of racial equity within curriculum and textbooks. And then they have like these lists of things. But on the plan, if there's no sort of explanation on to how these, you know, these actions are going to be accomplished or what these actions mean um, uh, in terms of outcomes, then they're just bullet points. It's, it's, it's not really saying anything that will, uh, that will demonstrate some serious action will take place. So I think we need to think about action. How can we take action? How can we move on what, on what our ideals are and how can we, you know, how can we move forward and, um, and from a place of activism? Yeah, I just to, to hop in, I, I really appreciate that point you made about how, you know, there's, it sounds like what a lot of schools are thinking is we have to do something. Mm -hmm. And what you're starting to unfold is like, well, there are some layers to this. There's mm -hmm. the strategic layer. There's the courageous conversational level layer. You know, there's the, there's the operational layer. And, and, you know, to your point of it being such a powerful system, I mean, one of the forces that I think, you know, I just know from my own research that we're fighting against is, you know, school is, was very much shaped by mid-century eugenicists. It yep. was shaped by, um, it was shaped by industrialists who were trying to basically break the psyche of humanity. I mean, yep. that's, that's what it was. And that's not, you know, that sounds crazy, but uh, you look at you know, for example, I mean, my goodness, who was uh, in allegiance to, say, the Nazi party, mm -hmm. who after the Second World War, you know, didn't go the way of the eugenicists, uh, became educational psychologists. Yep. And so it's like, and then that, you know, and then that, are, that started to go into intelligence and standardized testing and ability and difference and disability. You know, those roots have strong, I mean, you know, these concepts have strong roots within um, the eugenics movements and scientific racism, pseudoscience, pseudopsychology, uh, you know, that, that's some heavy, heavy uh, uh, 
orientations for how we are understanding, you know, intelligence and, um, and theories of difference, even today. I love talking about that yeah. sort of, uh, that sort of work. It's, it's, it's a crazy infatuation because it's, it's, you know, it's hard to understand and, and to read this. Like, this is how people were really thinking of, you know, quote unquote, the different, um, the different individual, you know, the feeble minded quote unquote, and, you know, people shouldn't even be allowed to even have kids. You know, how can, how can another individual say that another individual is not allowed to have a child, you know, and then that's mm -hmm. when the sterilization came into place. It's, mm -hmm. it's heavy. That, that's some heavy, um, it's, some heavy work it's some right heavy there. stuff. Yeah, it, it is. is. And I, and I, and I think it's, it's, you know, it's that, um, you know, you can stop for a minute and think about where that, you know, sort of still is in our schools today. You know, you see, you know, you see, you might have students who, because of these biased tests are in the more advanced track in a mm -hmm. school. And then you have students who disproportionately and unfairly are likely black or of a different race than white in this country are maybe in the lower performing tracks. And they, yeah. you know, it's like, you know, you don't, you don't see the AP students going to prom with the remedial students, right? So yeah. you're still furthering the eugenics sort of movement in these different yeah. ways. And, you know, I, and like you said, it's heavy. And I think it's something that I really struggle with. Uh, not that this is about me, but that it's really hard to, you know, point that out to an educator because yeah. how many educators are day in and day out, not even having any sense of realization of how their state mandated teacher training curriculum has programmed them to uh, be racist. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I think, I think one thing, you know, and, and I often say like, well, you know, where can educators start now that they've received the training, now that they are in the classroom? I think one, one thing that educators can really think about is looking at people of color as humans and, and understanding, again, going back to that experience of humanity and understanding that just because a person is quote unquote different, that there's nothing wrong with being different. There's nothing quote unquote abnormal about difference, that that is all really a part of the human experience. And, you know, really, and special education is such a touchy subject, but, uh, but on, you know, sort of a deep level or deep philosophy that I have, uh, a problem that I really see with special education is really rooted in the philosophies of difference and really how we come to understand how different students should be taught differently, should that, you know, the way that they should receive curriculum differently, even the ways in which they are located within the school building spatially is, is also different. So special education is, um, is, you know, is a good, is a good conversation to have because a lot of, um, racist movements and racist ideologies really come through heavy and strong within special education and our understandings of difference. And, you know, when it comes to teachers, um, you know, the teachers is a, that's a good starting point for one, for a number of reasons, but for one reason is that the teacher observations is really what, you know, kicks off the special education referral process. And so a lot of what goes on around special ed the base or the foundation is rooted within how teachers look at a student. So if a teacher says, oh, well, this student can't sit still, or they, you know, they have to get up every five minutes to throw something away, or every time he goes back to his desk, he, you know, he's, he, he needs to play with Katie because he has a crush on her, and he just can't go to his seat. He has to do all of these things. <laughs> he has to keep jumping up. And, you know, 
we may understand these behaviors or traits and the teacher may say, well, you know, he has ADHD and he needs to be medicated and he needs to be educated in a different space. Um, as opposed to saying, yes, you know, this person cannot sit still or they have to keep getting up. But we need to think about some teaching strategies that really embrace that aspect um, of this young boy as opposed to, you know, putting him into an entirely different classroom and even medicating him. So, you know, that's, that's where I think that we, where, you know, educators should begin to look at is really understanding what are some alternative um, humanistic um, teaching strategies that can really, you know, really embrace this student for who he or she is. And of course, you know, in ways that are also culturally relevant. So, um, so yeah, but special education is such a touchy subject um, because, you know, I also understand the work of special educators, particularly special educators who work with students who may have, uh, you know, se severe, um, I don't want to use the word disorders, but, uh, um, but severe challenges. And, you know, a lot of work takes place within special educators. But I also think we need to have critical, um, critical conversations as well around referring students um, and labeling students as, um, as having these sorts of disabilities or disorders, if you will. It's about the yeah. message that we send to students. And, you know, right. I think that's what you're talking about in terms of, you know, if we label you a certain way, then you take on that label. You right. internalize it and you start to have that be your experience of the right. world. Right. And so, like you said, the fact that that child can't sit still doesn't necessarily equate to intelligence, doesn't necessarily right. in any way equate to their ability in a classroom. Um, how they learn, they might be a kinesthetic learner and you're right. sitting there always just talking and verbal, right. verbal, 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 yep. and wondering why yep. they're not doing well and why they're struggling and why they're a behavior problem and why. Yep. And so it, it goes to what we're talking about here, which is, you know, if we're talking about the root causes of everything, mm -hmm. we have to look at the root causes when we're talking just about the individuals as well. Absolutely. And so um, I think that's kind of, you know, an aspect of what you're talking about as well is, yes, let's look at the root of education and the root causes of the inequities in our system and Absolutely. currently the root causes of the disproportionate referrals among students as well. Absolutely. I think another thing, you know, even when we're talking about, you know, sort of solutions or, or ways to address inequities, um, it's to look outside of America. Um, you know, as Americans, we have to also understand that, you know, we live in a bubble. We live in a huge... <laughs> A huge, <laughs> right, a huge bubble. And, um, and I had to Pop have the my own for us, Carla. Pop yes. the <laughs> I had to have my own awakening um, in that area. Uh, I went to uh, South Africa um, to teach. Um, and this was uh, 10 years ago. Wow, this was 10 years ago. I went in 2010, the summer of 2010. Uh, and that was such a huge awakening for me. And, um, and I'm very grateful for that. And one of the things that I, I noticed uh, that was sort of a paradigm that was ruptured for me was, um, was just that, that realizing that, you know, I, I was always looking at things within this very, you know, narrow monolithic perspective. And I did not have sort of a global or international understanding of, of societal problems, education, schooling, teaching, learning, any of that. So I think that's one one thing that we should think about is how can we learn from other uh, other countries, 
Now, you know, on the flip, people may say, well, yeah, you know, like, for example, people uh, uh, like to, you know, elevate Finland and the way that, that Finland schools and Finnish children learn, you know. And I understand that argument. Hey, Finland doesn't have, you know, tensions with race and racial politics and socioeconomics in the ways that America does. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why the schools there can be so successful. You know, that's sort of a counter argument. Um, but my, you know, my perspective is that I think we can learn from other people. Yes, they may have uh, other cult countries and other cultures may have different ways of sort of doing things and may have different orientations, but I think much can be learned. Uh, when I was in graduate school, I had a professor who was, in, who, I think she was born in Australia, but spent some time teaching in Finland. Um, but you all, she was so, so, so instrumental in my own um, awareness and thinking about education. And a lot of her perspectives came from the fact that she was not American. You know, she had a very, very different viewpoint on how schools uh, should be structured and, you know, sort of educational philosophies that was very different and unique to anything that I had ever heard. Uh, her name is Bernadette Baker. Um, <laughs> shout out to, to Bernadette. Shout out. Yes, have to give Bernadette Baker a shout out. And, um, and for a long time, my advisor would tell me, he said, Carla, you need to take a course with Bernadette. You need to take a course with Bernadette. And I was so afraid. I was so scared because I heard all of these things about her. And, um, and I said, well, I'm, I'm not ready. You know, <laughs> I'm not ready for that, that level of awakening yet. And my advisor said, no, you need to take her. She can really help you with your thinking. And I ended up taking three courses with her and I absolutely loved her. Um, and she has such um, sort of unique perspectives on race, gender, identity, sexuality, um, environmentalism, spirituality, everything. And she incorporated that into her curriculum, into her courses. Wow. And I mean, her, her courses were really amazing. You know, I remember I took a course with her around mind, body, and soul within education. You know, who teaches a course on those topics? You're speaking you know? Michael Carson's language right now. You're okay, all right, yes. yeah, yeah. And you know, and within the course, she talked about how we can learn, say, from indigenous and Native American cultures and how we can incorporate, you know, sort of their philosophies of spirituality um, into teaching. And, you know, I had never heard that before. I had never experienced or even thought about that. Um, and maybe that was sort of my own level of ignorance. Uh, but taking her course just really um, opened my mind to a completely different way of thinking. And so that's why I say, as educators, I think we can really benefit from learning from people who are not American and who, you know, come to this, uh, you know, who come to this work with, a, with more of a global, open-minded uh, perspective. Yeah, wow. Whew, exciting stuff. And I, yeah. you know, and I think, you know, with our, one of the things I wanted to ask you, and I'll, I just want to share a couple things contextually. But kind of like, what is that, you know, for a teacher who maybe is realizing that, you know, or an educator or anyone really that's realizing, um, wow, actually, there might be like, uh, I might have a, fil a bigger filter on for what's actually real in the, in this country or the world about, you know, race and bias and prejudice and, uh, you know, lack of equity and all that, uh, you know, because that's a big pill to swallow. And I, you know, I can remember like when I was teaching in DC public schools, you know, I was maybe one of three or four white people in the school. And I really wanted that. I had been really inspired as an educator. I was like kind of bored with, you know, I was like, I don't want to do this whole suburban school thing that they prep you for in teacher school. I was like, I want to do something 
interesting. And I had read a lot of accounts and I thought, well, this is a great opportunity for creativity. And I loved it anyway. But, you know, I think about recently having watched the Netflix documentary uh, 13th, which I don't know, which is about the prison industrial complex and which is, you know, you can start to awaken to all of the different programs that we've been given. Like, you know, you think about, uh, I mean, and when you watch that, you got to pay close attention to who in the political arena is actually pushing this racist agenda, who you wouldn't oh, yes. think. Absolutely. And yeah, I mean, what, you know, they just slip it in there because they know if it's too prominent, it'll, you know, the, the you know, the polarized won't accept it. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, the whole, you know, the, the brainwashing in the 80s and the 90s around super criminals, right? This like, and what is a super criminal? Well, look, you know, my first, I'm just, my experience teaching, it was like, I had to work through the fear of seeing a bunch of black kids who looked like the super criminals on the news, that it's just yeah. bullshit, right? And so these are the kind of awakenings that I think people are uh, maybe starting to have or the dots that they might be courageously beginning to be willing to accept, you know, and so just how do, how do you start to lean into that awakening as a teacher who's like, oh, oh, wow, <laughs> this is bigger than so I want to deal with. Yep. So let me, let me, uh, let me, yeah, let me address that. So first let me say that, you know, I think a key word that you mentioned, um, in your comment was, was fears. And, and I think that's, that's such a strong point and a good place where I want to begin uh, with my response. You know, when I first thought about teaching, uh, when my advisor first came to me and said, Carla, you know, you should be a teacher. The students will love you. You have a great personality and all of that. And I said, yes, I said, but I'm so afraid <laughs> of the students and, and all of that. And the idea of teaching in an urban school uh, really frightened me, you know, and I'm a black woman. And, and I was afraid by that because I was, I immediately, I didn't necessarily think of the image of the super criminal, but I was thinking of the image of, uh, of just, you know, sort of utter chaos, like in that uh, Lean on Me film where kids yeah, are just yeah. everywhere doing everything. That was the image that came to my mm -hmm. mind. The programming is real. Right, it is. And, um, and even growing up, you know, I'm from Chicago, but my mother raised me in the suburbs. She raised my sister and my family in the suburbs because she didn't want us. Uh, to, you know, really to be exposed to, uh, to inner city reality. You know, she didn't want that exposure for her children. So um, I didn't necessarily grow up within, I would, when, what I would call it as a, uh, as, a, as an inner city urban environment. I would really say I grew up still in an urban environment, but not necessarily inner city. So the idea of me um, teaching in an inner city really frightened me initially. It did. Um, I didn't tell anybody and I, I chose to work through it but initially it did. Um, but eventually by the time that I began teaching, I was really more excited more so than scared. And, you know, but that's more of a personal transformation that I had, you know, I had to say, I have to be willing to let go of these fears because I really feel that God is calling me to do a larger and more impactful work. And so for me, it was, it was also a, tr a spiritual transformation that caused me to not have the fears anymore. So, you know, I mean, I can't say that another person should have a spiritual transformation as well. I can't say that, but I will say that as an educator, if you begin to look at things from a spiritual lens, that that can help you to break down the fears um, that, that may come about. Um, you know, I think it's okay to have fears. We're all human, you know, uh, that I think that's just really a part of, of really being a human being, but I think it is also our responsibility uh, to let go of the fears and really work through them. 
Um, another thing that really, you know, sort of inspired me to let go of the fears is to really be, be excited about empowering young people. I was just excited about that. You know, I was excited about the idea that I could be in a position um, to empower students, to inspire students to think different and be different and do different. Um, I was just very humbled that I was in a position to do so, you know, and I didn't see my role as a teacher as just a teacher. Like, okay, class, we're on page 37, 37. <laughs> Don't make me say it again. Don't make me say it again. But I really saw my role as really, you know, uh, really inspiring young people to, to be passionate about literature, to be passionate about education. You know, even Shakespeare, you know, when I was an undergrad, I had a black professor who taught Shakespeare. He did an amazing job. Amazing. And and I would be in the class. First, I was just I was just awed that it was a black man, you know, really, uh, really excited about Shakespeare. Because when we think of Shakespeare, he's like, you know, the dead old white guy in the in the canon, and we shouldn't just talk about him anymore. Yeah. That was how I was understanding Shakespeare in college. And when I had to take because I was my major was English, and one of my required courses was to take a Shakespeare course. So I took Shakespeare tragedies. And I walk in the class and it's an older black man. I said, oh, this is going to be good. And every day I sat in the front row. But with the tragedies, you know, I, that was also where I really understood humanity on a different level. And I think that's really a hallmark of, of, of Shakespeare, you know, of, you know, really teaching about these human tragedies. But just for me, having a black professor and knowing how excited I was about Shakespeare after having his class, you know, that kind of fused into my teaching when I was teaching high school. I wanted the kids to be excited about literature. I wanted them to understand how literature could transform um, their lives. You know, even when we think about Frederick Douglass, you know, just the power of the pen with Frederick Douglass, someone who was not taught a formal education, but really learned how to read and write on his own and, you know, from other people, you know, it's just inspiring. And so I really wanted the students to also to have that sort of inspirational moment and you know so that was really my goal as an educator was not to really be this structured hardcore um, English teacher but really to inspire passion uh, within uh, within the students and to also really teach them about life skills you know um, growing up in Chicago has a lot of challenges and um, you know and I didn't want to make it seem like that I was a person who you know who quote unquote made it out but I really wanted them to see that um, that you know, even something as simple as making different choices could have such a huge impact in their life. And I really wanted them to understand the power of choice um, and, and you know, them having ownership um, over their lives and what they, you know, what they could achieve. Yeah. Um, even though, you know, in, in some communities it's, it's hard, you know, it's hard and I, I get it. You know, I mean, some communities are really strong with violence and drugs and gangs and, you know, it gets real, it really gets real. Um, but I really wanted the students to really understand it, that um, even though reality was real around them, that they still have, still had power um, in, in the choices that they make and, you know, ultimately their reality. Um, so, you know, even today, I'm still friends with a lot of my students on Facebook. Um, and I'm really, really glad to see that many of them are doing very well. Um, and, you know, even just recently, I posted a picture of my first year teaching and, um, and even on the comment, um, a lot of students responded and they was like, oh, Miss Manny, you know, Aww. you were great. You were so cool. We loved you and all of this, you know. And, you know, and I really had a lot of great relationships with my students. And that's another thing I would also say to educators um, in, in terms of removing that fear that you spoke about earlier, Michael, is really try to, 
you know, how can, and, and, and for an educator to say to him or herself, how can I develop these authentic relationships with my students? How can I really get to yeah. know them on a personal level yeah. and really establish trust with them? Uh, because we also have to understand as educators, a lot of students have a lot of distrust uh, towards educators, educational officials, especially the ones who are white. You know, let's just keep it real. You know, if we're talking about a white teacher teaching black students, you know, in an inner city and, you know, their experiences with white males have always been, you know, something that ended up in, in violence or some sort of resentment or anger or bitterness, you know, how can we expect for them to have a more positive, uh, um, you know, desire with a white teacher, if you will. So it really is, the responsibility is really on that educator to really say, I am someone who you can trust and I can really build uh, an authentic relationship with you. But that responsibility begins with the teacher. It doesn't necessarily begin with the student. The student has to understand that the educator is someone who can, um, who can be trusted uh, with them. And, and, you know, that is a process, um, but that, that is one of the things that, uh, that I took serious as an educator is really trying to build some very uh, authentic relationships with my students. And, and those relationships still continue to this day. And again, it shows, it speaks to the authenticity of those relationships. And, you know, I'm, I'm hearing just some big picture themes emerging. You know, one, you talked a lot about the outcomes and goals that we set for ourselves as educators, for our students. And that speaks to the second a theme of the expectations. You know, if we are coming into this to inspire and to uh, empower and to give this experience for everybody, whether it's to love Shakespeare, Shakespeare, or to be fascinated by algebra, or to find yeah. the the in depths of science, if yeah. that's our motivating factor, uh, then that's what drives us. And then the the third theme that I heard was this the idea of perspective. So right. uh, you talked about reading a lot and getting different perspectives there. You talked about the travel, and I think you don't even have to necessarily travel in today's world. We're so as we see now in the midst of a pandemic. I mean, we interviewed somebody from. Tel Aviv, Israel earlier in our podcast, you know, you, you have the ability now to be anywhere in the world with technology. Absolutely. And Absolutely. so that helps us to broaden our perspectives and we can learn as we grow here. Um, and so I think those themes of, of the goals that we're setting for ourselves and our students, the expectations we have and the perspectives, I think that that all speaks to who we are as educators and what we're trying to do, as well as what we started with, with this idea of diversity and inclusion. If we start with all three of those things as our goals and our perspectives and education, that automatically shifts our paradigm. Absolutely, absolutely powerful. Yes, yes, uh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, but really, I think as an educator, it really begins with it, it comes back to you as an educator. That's that's where a lot of it begins, and it, it and it has to be with an educator saying, "I'm willing to learn. I'm willing to grow. I'm willing to be different." for someone else, you know, and I'm willing to do with that, what it, what it needs to take. Um, you know, even for me, I mean, I've had to, I had to grow, you know, as a teacher, man, you know, working with some of the students, you know, I had, I had to grow, I had to develop and transform myself and my thinking. Um, because if I didn't, um, I would have been an educator, you know, who just, just didn't care. And I did not want to be that way. You know, one of the things where even where I had to grow is suspension and discipline, you know, because, um, I'm not a very patient person. That that is one area <laughs> of growth that I still have to work on. And, and and even as a teacher, I was extremely impatient. You know, if a student didn't do what I wanted them to do, and you know, I was quick to just kick a student out. And um and I had I had to come to terms with that. That you know, my impatience and my 
you know, my, my willingness to not grow in that area, you know, caused some disruption for students because I was not, then at that point, I was not willing to work with them or understand them or, uh, you know, change up something different because I just was not willing to do that. But, you know, when I got older, I realized the ways, the error in, in that sort of thinking that, hey, you know, my, my unwillingness to grow as, a, as, a, as an individual and as an educator left the impact and that impact wasn't always a positive impact sometimes that that impact was negative um and i think even when we're talking about suspension referrals for example we have to think about that as a teacher what could we have done differently to prevent a student from being suspended or from being um expelled yeah. you know expelled even um yeah. now if it's something that a student did um you know where the the infraction was serious you know you know, causing harm to someone physically, I think that's a little different, maybe. But, you know, sometimes teachers suspend students for, for petty things, things that, you know, don't require that. And, uh, you know, some of that, a lot of that comes back to ego within a teacher. And, you know, so as a teacher, we really have to work on ourselves. And I think that's a, a really strong starting point. Um, you know, even as a, as a lecturer, when I'm teaching my students um, at Queens College, that's one of the the strong points that I talk about is, you know, working on yourself, you know, and develop yourself and really grow within yourself as an educator so that you can really be the best version of yourself uh, for the students that you teach. That's really one of one of my main goals and messages, uh, you know, when I'm teaching pre-service teachers myself. Yes, <laughs> I love all of that. And I really just kind of the distinction you, I wanted to make a distinction and I know we have to wrap here in a minute, but uh, you really brought up this element of choice, both for the student, you know, students learning how, oh, I can choose, I can build the resiliency within myself and the sovereignty of who I am as a human being with a soul, yeah. with a spirit, with a body, and I can choose to act differently. And, and a as a teacher, right, because, you know, suspension and all of that in so many ways mirrors, you know, what happens to prisoners when they misbehave. It, yep. it is part of the it really, you know, the intention of a lot of that policy in school is part of the eugenics, racist, industrial agenda that is, you know, where did the industrial revolution go in the United States? It went into the penial labor system, which is mm. a bigger economy than slavery was at mm. the time of the Civil mm. War. So that, you know, that that element of teachers to really choose rather than comply mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. with uh, the, the racist system, like you said, right, it's a personal journey, right? It's not yeah. like night and day. And it's a complex set of emotions, but I just really appreciate that, you know, that sentiment of teaching choice. Absolutely. In all ways. Absolutely, yeah. We can go on and on. I know, um, I know that it's two o'clock now. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yes, I mean, this, this, yes, yes, yes. Yes, this is <laughs> well, we're just going to have to, we're just going to have to circle back down the road once we've gotten some more experience in and do another episode. Absolutely. I'm, I'm definitely willing to, to come back. Absolutely. Excellent. This was great, Carla. I appreciate it. We're very thrilled to have you as a guest here. And how can our listeners get in touch with you? And how can the Equity Leadership Group lead them and their schools and their districts through change? 
Absolutely. Uh, please feel free to visit www.equityleadershipgroup.com, equityleadershipgroup.com. Uh, for more information, you can book a discovery call with me there. Um, my podcast is the Equity Experience Podcast, available on all major podcast platforms. And then I'm also on LinkedIn. Um, and my Instagram is Black Girl Butterfly with two Y's. Black Girl Butterfly. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you so much, Carla. This has been wonderful. And we uh, look forward to, as Michael said, continuing the conversation down the road. Absolutely. Thanks, guys, for having me. Thank you. Thank you, Carla.